internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and ordinarily we would be here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. But this time we're going to do the first two, kind of. It's a little weird. I'm thinking of calling this our Love versus Hate Centennial Special. I'm thinking of calling this our 100th goddamn episode. This is our 100th episode, yes. We have made a 100 of these. We've been doing this podcast for what, like four and a half years? At this point, yeah. Damn. We're old. (laughs) How do you feel after 100 episodes, Andy? I feel very good. This is a project that, like... Every time we sit down and actually talk about something, even if over the past four and a half years there's been a little heel dragging or there's been a little like, oh, I don't really know how this is going to go. Whenever we actually sit down and start talking, it's always a delight. It, 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 when it's not a delight, it's soul-crushingly depressing, but that's kind of a delight in its own way. I feel like... Okay, so... I don't know if I've told the story of this podcast and how it came about, really. And it's not much of a story. Uh, It is literally, I had this idea because I wanted to do a podcast. I loved the idea of doing a, like, relationship advice show. Right, you wanted to do, like, a Dear Abby for the podcast age. Well, I the thing was, there was a podcast, and I don't know if it's still running, but there was a podcast I loved that was called The Struggle Bus. And it was two. Uh, it was a two people in New York City. One was a neo futurist actor, and the other one was uh, a former BuzzFeed writer who was kind of doing the freelance writing gig at the time. But they had a podcast together where basically people wrote in with their various advice questions. Mm-hmm. And I really liked this podcast, and I really liked that format. Uh, and I was interested in it, but I didn't feel like it was enough to just do like a relationship show or a advice show. And I wanted to talk about other shit. I wanted to be able to talk about music or comics or uh, just things that were annoying me. And somewhere along the line, I got the idea of the phrase love-hate relationship. Sure. And went, oh my God, that could be three podcast segments. And originally I was talking about doing this with uh, an old friend of mine and Stephanie's, who was actually a closer friend of Stephanie's, someone she went to school with, who was also talking about doing a podcast. And for whatever reason, that never panned out. She ended up leaving North Carolina and moving back to New Jersey. And I was like, well, there goes the person I was talking about this podcast idea with. And then I went back to Florida for a visit. Yep. And I and, and we we planned this whole beach day. It was... Me and Stephanie were down there, and we got a whole bunch of our friends together, including you and Mariah. And we were standing on a beach in Tampa. Yep. When I was talking about this podcast idea and how I was bummed because the person I was going to do it with had moved away, and you piped up. I did indeed. And you were you seemed very excited at the prospect. I was very excited. I was very interested. Mo and I had dipped our toes into the world of trying to be let's play video game reviewers, and that really hadn't like borne fruit. And I, I was hungry for a creative outlet and a creative project. 
and one happened to land at my feet. Well, and it's funny because um, you have your other podcast, Cult Fiction, uh, with uh, my lovely partner, Stephanie. And you pitched me par- Cult Fiction when we were talking about this. You asked me, hey, would, would you also be interested in doing a podcast like this? And I was very much like, let's get this project off the ground, then maybe we'll talk. Indeed. Maybe. And my whole thing with Love-Hate Relationship was like, I only want to release this like twice a month. Um, Because that's what Night Vale did. And I'm like, that seems sustainable. I think we should bank a whole bunch of episodes before we started. We didn't do that. Uh, (laughs) No, we did not. And and I was really into this idea. The very first recording we ever tried, we tried to each have a love and a hate. And that was like a three-hour practice episode. Which will never see the light of day. No, but it was was a lot of fun to record. And then it, it, you know, we... I feel like we figured it out. We learned. We figured it out. We got a groove going, and and that was a very good thing indeed. And yeah, just like you said, you you I was very ambitious. I was very overzealous. You kind of reined in the practical way of how to actually do this, and we went with that route. Well, because at that point, I'd had multiple creative projects that I tried to launch that like honestly felt like I tried to back in the days of blogs Mm -hmm. I tried to get a blog going and it was way too ambitious and my original thought was that I'd release like three three blog posts a week and they would be like music and literature uh reviews and takes and that fell apart I had a blog about minimalist living (laughs) that I did through the lens of the zombie apocalypse because I love zombie media and I was really into minimalism at the time. And like that blog was actually pretty okay. But again, it fell by the wayside when life shit happened. So I was like, I want this project to live. So I'm going to make it sustainable. And here we are 100 episodes later. And and I don't know if I've talked about this on the record or not but like yeah you you've told the the story of the birth of love hate relationship and how it it bore fruit at a conversation we had at like an old friend get together in in tampa florida and like maybe this is over dramatic on my part but we were in a place in our respective lives where you guys had moved away for grad school and now you were posted up in Asheville, North Carolina, when everyone else was in Orlando. And we kind of, we were in a drifting apart place in our friendship, I, I think. We didn't talk every day. Say. We, yeah. we talked a couple times a year. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And we, we, you brought up this idea. We laid some groundwork. You came back down like a few months later. And that's when we, like, actually really sat down and planned this sucker out. And I say without exaggeration that I think this podcast and this project reinvigorated our friendship. And I... That means a lot to me. That means a lot to me. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you ended up moving up here just to make the recording easier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> exactly. So, dear listeners, dear internet friends... Mrs. Ruiz, thank you for journeying with us through these episodes. If you have, if this is your first episode, welcome. Things are going to be a little bit different this time, but I think you'll still get the vibe of what we do here on this show. 
And as you said, normally we one of us brings something we love, the other brings something we hate. And we're kind of doing that this time. Yeah, this time we're, we're doing that, but unlike any topic we've talked about before, we're actually talking about the same thing. Yes. No, no relationship question this time. No relationship question. We're just going to talk extensively to death about how much I love Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. And then after you're done talking about how much you love it, I am then going to go into every reason why I fucking hate this movie. Indeed. Because we really loved the idea that for our hundredth, you know, for our fifth, every fifth episode, or every episode that ends in a five, every ten episodes or so, we do a triple, we, we do a triple. Sometimes that's, you know, a thing we both deeply love. Sometimes it's a thing we both deeply hate. And sometimes we just get drunk and go on relationships.txt's Twitter. Which is a fun time. And just read, like, I don't know, six to ten relationship questions and just do that for the hour and a half. But we thought for our hundredth episode, let's find a thing. And we pitched some ideas for this before we settled on this one. Oh, yeah. We were going, like, not to spoil it because we're probably going to do these at a later time, but we were going to talk about the band Kiss. Um, We had a couple more out there, but then somehow somebody brought up Pirates in a room we were both in and my face lit up and your brow furled. <laughs> and I realized that this was going to be the well that would have the most oil. Yeah. Just for this, I rewatched this garbage movie. <laughs> I rewatched it and it was a damn joy. Well, shall we get started? Then? Yeah. Let's go ahead. And like, I know normally one of us talks for a long amount of time. Then the other one talks. I, I suspect this is going to be a bit of a back and forth, but I am happy to start. I, d- I don't intend to refute your points too much as you're making them. Oh, I intend to refute yours. <laughs> All right, so it's 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 going to be like that. We'll roll up our sleeves and have it out, motherfucker. Exactly. That's the point. That's why we're doing this. This is Alex vs. Andy is the subtitle. All right, get us started talking about this piece of shit movie. So for anyone who's unaware, which... I, I question how that could be possible. However, this is a 20-year-old film. Pirates of the Caribbean is an American fantasy supernatural swashbuckler film series produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and based on Walt Disney's theme park attraction of the same name. That is what happens when you look up Pirates of the Caribbean on Wikipedia. Real quick, why do you keep calling it Pirates of the Caribbean? Because I intermittently go between Caribbean and Caribbean. That's really weird. Go on. <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. Specific, like, it, it, it is a film series. It is. It, it was the last great vehicle for Johnny Depp. It, it was, you know, it, it came out in the same aughts era that, like, everything was a trilogy. Mm-hmm. And we had this big, important thing. It's... It, it, Pirate the the Pirates trilogy and the Sam Raimi Spider Man trilogy like kind of run parallel in my head. Well, it's it's just historically speaking, you start with the X Men trilogy in two thousand. Indeed, you get the Lord of the Rings trilogy in two thousand and one. You get the Spider Man trilogy in two thousand and two, and you get this in two thousand three. Indeed, fair enough. And for our purposes, we are going to be talking specifically about Pirates of the Caribbean, 
Curse of the Black Pearl. Because it's the only Pirates movie that I have watched front to back. And I wasn't going to watch any others. <laughs> and, and I will say, like, it is the only one that I would step up to fight you on. Okay. About this. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, this is a film series. It was produced by Disney. It starred Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom. And then the later ones are just Johnny Depp and whoever was hanging out around the studio that day. Mm. It is, ba- it, it is you know, it is fantastical pirate supernatural adventures is the basis of it all. It, it gave us memes like, why is the rum gone? And I've got a jar of dirt. And all this stuff, and it is based off of the theme park ride from Disney. Do we want to take a second to talk about that theme park ride? I mean, just, I, you know what? Sure. Let's go ahead. All right. Um, you've been on the part that I, I will say that ride is perfectly fine. I have nothing bad to really say about that ride. It's like, it's a slower ride. It's all about the vibes. It's not going to be one of those. You know, it's not Space Mountain. Sure, it's not a coaster. It's not, yeah, it's not anything like that. It's it's a, you know, it's a cool little, like, vibe boat ride kind of deal. There's not a whole lot to say about it. It's, no, it's, you, you ride through a simulation of a pirate raid on a island in the Caribbean. And, like, you see them pillage and plunder and chase about women and... There's a cannon fight, and there's one bit where you see, like, a skeletal pirate at the helm of a wheel. Yeah. And, like, it's just, like, a thing. Right. Like, I don't know when that ride originated, but it feels very, like, 70s or 80s. So, pirate the, the Pirate's Ride was one of the inaugural theme park attractions. It came out in 1967. And it looks like it. Indeed. They updated it after the movies came out and added a bunch of, like, animatronic Johnny Depp's and Jeffrey Rush's and shit. Um, But it's just like, yeah, the ride is, like, fine. It's fine. And somehow, at some production meeting, some executive turned to Bob Iger or whoever was in charge at the time and was like, I have an idea. That was Michael Eisner at the time. Okay, then Eisner. We have the potential for an entire, like, set of movies. What if we did them based off our beloved and famous attractions? And I can only assume Eisner leaned in and went, go on. Did this come out before or after The Haunted Mansion? This came out six months before The Haunted Mansion. Because that was the other one that's based off of an attraction, and I'll... I'll give this movie this. It is more memorable than the Haunted Mansion well, okay. movie. Okay, so here's here's how I'm going to start. This movie is so good that you, they took the admittedly bizarre and risky idea of we're going to make theme park rides into movies. And this is going to be our inaugural effort and this movie was so good that they sat there and thought oh my god we've hit the jackpot this is going to be a license to print money let's make a comedy about haunted mansion with eddie murphy and the haunted mansion was so bad 
that they went, oh, shit, no, the first one was just lightning in the bottle. Scrap the Space Mountain movie. Scrap the Thunder Mountain Railroad movie. Don't dig up Song of the South. The one note I will give you is do not confuse good and bad with money-making and not money-making. I don't, because this is a good movie. Come at me. The Curse of the Black Pearl is like, it is a, I call it a modern classic. Mm -hmm. And I've been calling it a modern classic for the past two weeks, ever since I knew that we were going to be talking about this. It is fun, it is quotable, it is bombastic in a way that, like, I very much enjoy. It manages to not feel like a modern Marvel movie in that everything is, like, CGI and super quippy. It is a super fit quippy film, but the script is, like, more polished in a way. It's a little less cynical, it's a little less... Here, this is assembly line. This is what we do. Hell, this might have actually helped start the assembly line. But this is like a film that you don't get anymore. We've talked extensively about films that used to exist and no longer do. Like the, the, the mid-budget rom-com. This is a practical, big blockbuster adventure movie that has actual filmed-on-location stuff minimal cgi yes minimal cgi except for the goddamn zombie pirates which we just both watched this and i would say hold up i will say the zombie pirates hold up better than say the scorpion king yes but don't tell me minimal cgi when there is in the middle of this goddamn movie andy what is effectively a disney musical sequence of pirate swapping bullshit and it's amazing and it's super cgi it is a set piece yes okay like i said except for the one thing that has to be cgi but like this has multiple cannon fight sequences this has multiple swashbuckling look look at the other two fucking movies which you may remember one of them involves a three-man sword fight, partly that takes place on a giant rolling water wheel. That is CGI as hell. That is CGI where, like, okay, we can't practically film this, so we're going to, like, do a bunch of green screen shit. This movie, Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl, is practically filmed, except for the one thing, yes. This movie has an excellent script, I will say. And I, I don't just mean the lines. You know, there are fun lines. There's stuff to make you laugh. But more than that, like actually going into this movie, in the first 20 minutes, you know almost everything you need to know to set you up for the entire movie. We have a five-minute opening sequence, which is a flashback and shows us young Elizabeth Swan, our heroine, young Will Turner, our protagonist. It sets up a secondary antagonist in Lieutenant Norrington, who becomes Commodore Norrington. In like five minutes, you get that, okay, we're in pirate times. Pirates are bad. There's this kid and he's got a really fucking crazy necklace thing. It sets up our first two characters and, like, kind of hints at some stakes. 
Then we flash back to like waking up from a dream, Kira Knightley as Elizabeth Swan. Okay, now we're in our quote unquote modern day. In the first 20 minutes, you know, you learn everything you need to know about Elizabeth Swan. Everything you need to know about Jack Sparrow. You do not learn everything you need to know about Jack Sparrow. Yes, you learn everything you need to know about Jack Sparrow. You don't know everything there is to know about Jack Sparrow. You don't know, like, the motivations of Jack Sparrow. But you understand when he rides into the port in a sinking ship, standing proudly on the crow's nest, and then just, like, perfectly steps off in his sinking boat, everything you need to know about what kind of person you're dealing with. He has a three-line interaction with the harbor master where he's like, hold on, you need to tie up your boat. And they both stare at the sunken ship. And it's a, and, and or, you need to register your name. And it's a shilling for the boat. And he goes, how about three shillings? And we forget the name. He gives the guy three shillings. He walks away, immediately steals his purse, you understand he is a, a scoundrel. He is a rapscallion. You know everything about Liz. You know everything about, about Jack. You don't know next to anything about Will. But that's okay because Will Turner is the one who you are actually supposed to learn shit about throughout the course of the movie. That's why it's a big twist in the middle of the film that his father was a pirate who served with Jack and it was affected by the curse. And it's his blood that is the magic MacGuffin that you need to actually like solve the curse. Okay. Do real talk. Do you want me to let you finish, or do you want me to tell you what I hate about this script no. while you're talking about how much you love it? I, I want this to be a back and forth. Okay. This script is trash. Why is the script trash? They're on Why is the Okay. Small point first. The quippiness, the lines, are trash. How many times in this fucking movie do we get the dialogue trope of good day, Elizabeth, say goodbye, goodbye. How many times do we get just the most cringy, ridiculous, like they don't workshop the jokes in this. They don't really pull out those dialogue moments of comedy with the kind of, they overuse them. It is very much a script that was punched up for comedy. Sure. And poorly so. You talk to me about the first 20 minutes and how we know everything we need to know about these characters. But here's a perspective. What is our POV as an audience? By the language of the film, the POV is Elizabeth Swan. She is the first character we see both in flashback and out of flashback. Okay. Who is our POV by the end? <laughs> Debatably no one. At what point in the movie do we lose Elizabeth Swan as our POV? Mm, around the middle of the film, I would say. Right after after the reveal of the zombie pirates, after the set piece, after you get Jeffrey Rush saying that she is in a ghost story, I would argue that like we stop getting any isolated scenes of Elizabeth in a, like, this is our protagonist sense. I will add to this. Not only do we lose that for Elizabeth, 
but we have our, okay, when you're dealing on a script level with a perspective character, and I, here's the thing, I'm okay with movies that function based off of an unclear POV or a POV that shifts. You and I talked about Barbarian oh, not that long ago. Sure. There is a distinct POV shift in that movie. Sure. But that movie does it very well by making that shift very clean and very deliberate. There is such a thing as your POV characters being the ones who are continually learning things. But this movie constantly, constantly has characters revealing things to us, the audience, and shifting off the perspective for who is getting those revelations. That is sloppy. That is sloppy storytelling. Do you have to have a single point of view character? Do you have to have a single protagonist? You do not have a single, you no, do not need to have a single POV character. You do not have to have a single protagonist. If you are not going to have a single one though, you have to make those transitions clean. You have to make those transitions meaningful and they can't simply be, well, this bitch is on a boat now. <laughs> So we're going to follow these two assholes, one of whom clearly knows things about the other one, the and this one doesn't know shit even about himself, and we're not going to really get any introspective look into either of their perspectives. Because at that point, it turns from a very loose Elizabeth Swan movie into a even looser buddy rescue movie that abandons that plot pretty instantaneously in Tortuga. Hmm. I'm not saying you're wrong. I You're saying you don't care. No, well, the thing is like, okay, this is very clearly I, I see your point about it 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 is a little murky. But I wonder if at the end of the day the point is not supposed to be that you have a triumvirate of protagonists. You have your Will Swan, Will Turner, Elizabeth Swan, Jack Sparrow, kind of in the vein of you have your Luke, Leia, and Han. And in Star Wars, you shift those perspectives very cleanly. You don't have to agree with me. But I'm going to make these points, because if you're going to talk to me about how good this script is... By the way, I haven't even gotten to the biggest problem with this script, which is how goddamn bloated it is. Why is this movie two and a half hours, Andy? <laughs> what happened to you that you just don't have, like, fun or whimsy? This movie is two hours so that we can not feel rushed in setting the stage, because we do need... Like, I say you need to know everything in the first 20 minutes. They don't get out of fucking Port Royal for, like, the first 35 or 40 minutes. You need to set the stage, and you need to give these characters room to breathe. Maybe so that you can get away with then ping-ponging around who you're supposed to care about and when at any given time. This is the thing that we talked about. You don't like fucking Fellowship of the Ring for the same exact reason. I did not tell you I don't like Fellowship <laughs> of the Ring. I told you I like Fellowship of the Ring less than the Two Towers because it is burdened with the throat clearing. It is burdened with the setup. 
which two towers has the and I st I use this language. I said the two towers is privileged to not need to deal with that. You did. You did. And I'm not I'm not going to turn this into that other fight while we're already having this one. I like the two towers and I like fellowship. I think Return of the King is bloated, but this is bloated as shit. This, no, this is not bloated because you need act 1 is the table setting. Act one is showing us everything about the characters except really Barbosa and the ancillary pirate crew that they hire in Port Royal. Act two is everything that gets you set up for the finale. So everything from the uh, scene where Barbosa and the pirates push off from Port Royal and kidnap Elizabeth with them to the... Um, moment where the dauntless or the interceptor rather is blown up and then you have the finale the last act which is the big like the big adventure climax up down up up down all right andy andy all right tell me something where for you this is, we're, we're gonna get into a little bit of script theory here so in storytelling, and I'm talking about Blake Nelson save the cat kind of bullshit. Uh -huh. We're talking, we're we're talking that level of like script analysis. The idea is somewhere around the halfway point of the first act, and this is malleable, but the, somewhere around the first half of the first act, you have the inciting incident, which is the beginning of the conflict of the movie. Mm -hmm. Act one ends with the results and consequences of that inciting incident now being clear, and we move on to act two where the story progresses. Okay, so to stop you right there, the inciting incident is when Elizabeth Swan falls from the cliffs into the water, the necklace which we have been shown she wear, the, the coin, the Aztec coin, the cursed Aztec coin, the, the poison, the poison of Cusco, Cusco's poison, the cursed Aztec <laughs> coin MacGuffin that we have been shown from the very first scene of the film. We are shown clearly that she wears it around her neck. It is the symbol for that she actually loves Will and gets really upset that he's too much of a pussy being respectful to actually call her by her name. She falls into the water because she is wearing a corset and it is choking her to death. She falls into the water it floats out and there is a fucking magic shockwave that is notable by people standing on the shore. That is the inciting incident. From that moment, the cursed pirates are coming. The movie is now rolling down the hill. Okay. Okay. Nice. And, and the end of act one mm -hmm. is the pirates have arrived. Chaos has ensued. Elizabeth Swan has been captured and stolen. And Will and Jack need to go save her. Okay. So that's our inciting incident, and that's the end of Act 1. I think the end of Act 1 is slightly more murky. There is an argument that Act 1 does end when the pirates reveal themselves to be undead creatures to Elizabeth, which is a little bit later on. Mm. That, there, that is an argument, but your, your stated Act 1, there's a fair argument to be made there as well. So I'm not going to fight you on that. Okay. Look at our inciting incident. A good inciting incident is one in which our 
protagonist or at the very least our the characters that we are following the characters whose stories we are invested in make the the best inciting incidents good inciting incidents are ones where they make a choice and then that choice then comes back to bite them they make a choice preferably that they know is wrong now you could argue elizabeth tiny little girl elizabeth made a choice when she took will's coin she did that is actually not a bad bit of table setting for what could be a very good inciting incident. But why does Elizabeth have that coin at the time? She has that coin because she puts it on at the beginning and then her dad rushes in and she's taken unawares and doesn't have a chance to take it off. And then she puts on this fucking corset because she's told that she should yeah. and she follows along with it, and then she falls into the goddamn water. Which, metaphorically speaking, is brilliant because she falls into her fucking inciting incident. It's not about Elizabeth's choices. And you could make the argument that, like, this says something about the state of women in this kind of a society, but the movie never pays off that kind of interpretation. Oh, no, no, no. I, yeah, I don't think the movie is trying to say that at all. So well, our inciting incident is a giant fucking accident. It's a giant fucking coincidence. And it is a huge plot hole in this movie that those goddamn coins gotta hit water before any of these motherfuckers know where they are. They're the pirates! plot holes in this movie are <laughs> trash, Andy. The inciting incident is garbage that we only forget is garbage because there's a cool pirate siege sequence right afterwards. It is smoke and it is fucking mirrors. Well, the smoke is from all the cannon fire. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I will give you, I, I will absolutely give you that the details of the ancient Aztec curse are a bit hit and miss and, and fast and loose. We get a single account from uh, one of the minor pirate comedic side characters. Or no, 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 it's Barbosa. It's Barbosa yeah. who tells her how it is a curse placed on a, a, tress, a chest of treasure from the Aztecs given to Cortez. And that's about all we fucking know about the curse and ever know about the curse. And we never find out how they figured out how to break the curse. I will give you that. I will absolutely give you that. The curse is an excuse for zombie pirates, which are objectively cooler than live pirates. I'm not but, gonna, I won't argue with you on that point. You say it's bullshit and it's smoke and mirrors. And, and this was something that I... I wanted to say what i more wonder is if the idea behind the film and the idea behind the script is that this is constant waves to abuse the pun of dramatic irony there is so much going on that characters and us the audience do not know at any given time and the trick of the film is to, again and again and again, faster and faster and faster by the end, set up all of these tricks where it's some people know this thing, other people don't know this thing. Well, and let's also be fair. This is a Jerry Bruckheimer produced movie. Yes. And Jerry Bruckheimer did not write this movie. No. But there is something that occurs with a lot of Jerry Bruckheimer movies. Think about The Rock. 
Think about National Treasure. Think about Con Air. These are <laughs> these are all Jerry Bruckheimer movies. And these are all movies that are based off of a very dumb initial premise. And you, to a certain extent, have to enter into the movie with a certain amount of disbelief where you go, an entire airplane that's just convicts? Yeah. This will go well. Absolutely. Like, you, you need to suspend your disbelief going into most Jerry Bruckheimer movies. And this one definitely falls into that. This movie requires a certain amount of buy-in up front. And I'll be, and I'll be honest with you. I struggled to give this movie that buy-in from the very beginning. I struggled to give this movie this buy-in 20 years ago. <laughs> and I have still never really given it that buy-in. You the, say it's because I hate fun. It is the most you thing ever to be like an 11-year-old watching this in the theaters and just immediately going in and like being like, okay, what's this bullshit? Like, I, here's the thing. I watched this movie and I remember watching it back when I was like 14 and I and I had I had friends who loved this movie uh-huh. Andy. I had girls I had crushes on who <laughs> loved this movie and I tried to watch it and I tried to understand people whose opinions I respect love this movie and I'll be honest I don't think less of people for liking this movie I like a lot of schlocky action movies I do but this was so this might have been the first one of these kinds of movies cuz 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 I'll be upfront with you you and I both loved the mummy i okay yes i was just about to fucking say tell me how this is different from the mummy so well, go on so here's the thing you and i both loved the mummy and if i were to sit down and plot the mummy scene by scene do do the note card expect the note card um not experiment um exercise sure that i'm sure you've seen done with some kind of film studies yeah where you're plotting the scene the, the scenes on note cards and you go okay is this ending on a down note an up note what are we working with here the mummy you could argue is a little overwrought you could argue there are sequences in the mummy that you could cut You could argue that there are sections of the mummy that don't necessarily build off of one another perfectly. I'm willing to admit that. And I will say, but I will say, in watching the mummy, maybe this was my age. Maybe this was the fact that I was legitimately charmed by other aspects of it, like the performances. And I want to talk about some of the performances in this movie. Okay. But for whatever reason... Where the mummy is two or two and a half hours and feels like it should be that length. I don't think the mummy feels too long. It definitely does not feel too short. This movie, for me, feels entirely too long. And I think maybe for me, I watched this movie at a point where I could finally see those strings. Where I sat here and I went, okay... Why are we at the point where we're doing this weird fake-out sequence with Elizabeth, like, kind of trying to get sacrificed because of the confusion with the pirates? And it's, it's, there, there's a chunk here. The, the bit with Jack and Elizabeth on the island, you could cut that entire sequence. It, it adds nothing. Nothing at all. 
overall, other than to give you space for Johnny Depp and Kira Knightley to act one-on-one, -on -one, and for Johnny Depp to say the stupid "Where's why is the rum gone mm. line. Plot-wise, you could condense that entire chunk significantly. It is purely there to give some breathing room in between cannon fire sequences, which, granted, you should probably have if you're going to have a lot of cannon fire sequences. But I would argue the cannon fire sequences aren't as great as you state they are. Because there's a certain point where I'm like, oh, this is like the third cannon fire sequence we've gotten in a row, and they're not building off of one another. Now, the mummy, the violence in those, the action sequences in those continue to build. You start with this much, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you have pauses in between. I would argue the pirates one... Are any of those battle sequences really notably bigger or smaller than the other? It kind of feels like they are all a bit maximalist. Well, okay. No, they don't, but here's the reason why. And this is this is one of my points. This movie, Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl, manages to do the most ludicrous thing in that, in my opinion... It references the source material, which is, again, a fucking theme park ride in a way that is not too over the top and not, like, eye-roll worthy. It only does it a couple of times. It, it, it goes, hey, remember this part of the ride? And you go, yeah, I do, pirates. And it goes, okay, cool. Now let's get back to it. The sequence in which the Black Pearl raids Port Royal is the way it is is so big and over the top because it is supposed to evoke the parts of the ride when you are driving through them pillaging a a town authorial intent is not a sign of quality <laughs> no but the the like the, the sign of quality is is how effectively it does this it makes one joke one reference where the prisoners are holding out the keys and the bone the, the bone for the dog with the keys. And, like, you have the bit where they wake Mr. Gibbs up because he's sleeping with the pigs. And you have the line where Jack sees the redhead. We wants the redhead that everybody wants. It, it, it does these little things. So my point is that is why the first action sequence is as big as it is. We do get some intense breathing room in terms of just between cannon fire sequences. And then we get an actual sequence of naval combat where we have the interceptor versus the pearl. And I would argue that works. It, it, it is the same level of intensity, but it works differently because that is just Jerry Bruckheimer and director Gore Verbinski going like, Let's have a really fucking cool pirate fight sequence. And it it feels like it's supposed to. It's you you get cannon fire, you get shots of these two beautiful ships blowing splinters off each other. You get crews standing on the prow, rope in one hand, fucking hatchet in the other, screaming at each other, ready to jump ship. You get actual boarding. It's so much fun. And those aren't and the only would, two. And it would be more fun if I hadn't had other action sequences that were just as intense previous. 
Except you don't. You okay? You don't. Let's plot. Let, let's fucking plot this. <laughs> you get the first actual bit of action is Jack Sparrow escaping from the guards, and he's on the. He kicks the thing, and he goes up in the air, and he's flying around, and they're shooting at him with muskets, and it's zany and wacky, and that's supposed to be more fun and comedic. Then you get the fight scene between Will and Jack, which is desperate. No. Which is badly edited. Well choreographed, badly edited. Okay, I can't speak to that because I was not watching for the editing. And no, and I will, and I will, sorry to interrupt you here. There is the later fight scene, like the later sword fight scene between Jack and Barbosa and Will and. And Elizabeth and some pirates. Yeah. Yeah. That scene is actually well edited. That scene was actually well done. It was very solidly done. And it's so weird because I'm taking notes as I'm doing this and I'm like, why was that first one edited like schlock, like Mm. trash? Why was it so obvious the doubles they were using? Why did it cut so quickly? It felt like I was watching a Twilight fight scene in that first one. Mm. And then the second one was significantly better. I'm almost angrier because we got a good one later because that shows that they were capable of cutting this properly. Is that not an example of your point of adding to the later sequences? No, because it's not about choreography. Both were choreographed well, but one was edited like shit. Interesting. I'll, I'll straight up say I, I cannot refute this because I... I do not remember seeing it and being like, this is edited really poorly, but I was not watching for that. So now I'm going to have to go back. I will say... Harvey wants to YouTube it right now. Like, pause the recording, YouTube it, have us watch it, and and me be like, okay, look at this fucking editing. Well, my point still stands. You need that sequence because that finally starts to give us some actual, like, character development for Will. It shows... I won't disagree with that. it, It shows that he is, you know... Not this shy guy, only he is when it's around Elizabeth. But then he, like, spends three hours a day because he's consumed with vengeance and, like, listless and needs a thing to do. Yeah. I'm not mad about that. You get that. Then you get the big set piece pirate raid. There's shit exploding everywhere. There's dudes running around chasing women and throwing grenades inside windows. And then the movie, like takes a fucking second like i don't think there is another fight sequence or action sequence until no because we get an undead pirate musical number that's not an action sequence that's a set piece (laughs) fucking stupid go on (laughs) i don't think we get another action sequence for like another 40 minutes until you do get the sequence where the pearl and the interceptor actually fight do you count the Interceptor and the, what's that other ship? Um, the slower the Dauntless. Ship. Do you count that moment there with the switching of the two? No, that's not an action sequence. That's that's five minutes of, of a heist film. That, that I will admit, uh, here's the thing, I'm trying to make the admissions of parts of this movie that I do enjoy. Yeah. I'll admit, writing-wise and, like, sequencing-wise, I thought that was, that was okay. That was entertaining. Sure. Uh, that was, I didn't hate that part. You, so so we cut to, like, the, the we, we get 40 minutes of breathing room and, like, plot development and people revealing shit and people betraying shit. 
Then we get the sequence where the two ships fight. Then we take another couple minutes. We take like another 15, 20 minutes before we get to the ending where through sequences we wind up with the zombie pirates doing like a gorilla sneak attack on the ship, mm -hmm. which then turns into pirates versus Her Majesty's Royal Marines. While at the same time, you have Jack and Barbosa and Will and, and Elizabeth and three random pirates all fight. Yes. Don't, don't forget the blustering white noise of violence that is the, the entire Tortuga scenes. It is a blustering white noise of violence and there is no other term for it. You know this. See, I just don't count any of that as action. Yes, it, it's very loud and cacophonous. And that's our that's my point with this. Like, okay, you know what? I'll I'll give you I'm trying to be generous here. I appreciate that. I legitimately you're not showing me the same generosity, by the way. But no, because I want to win. <laughs> I am trying to be generous here. I'll give you this. Action should be distinguished in this discussion. Action sequence should be distinguished from high energy action. And there is so much high energy action that your action sequences get washed out. Whether it is the musical sequence or whether it is all the fighting on Tortuga, whether it is our heist sequence where there is the threat of violence and a lot of loudness. Like that's the thing, this movie does not have levels and i'm speaking specifically in terms of the audio in terms of the loudness of sequences you get qui your quietest moments are like a couple of tender spots between elizabeth and will and i literally mean like two or three sure you get the dinner sequence with Barbosa, which turns into your set piece. And I say that as a slur. He looks so angry, guys. <laughs> you get like them, you, you, you get like Will and, uh, Will and Jack's like trying to steal a boat sequence with the like boat underwater stuff and, and a couple of those small moments on the ship. And you get... Jack and Elizabeth on the on the island. Mm -hmm. What else do you have as far as your spots for things to be lower? Never mind that every single one of those sequences that like immediately afterwards, you get a giant elevated moment. Everyone stay calm. We are taking over the ship. I of us. <laughs> I will give you that. I, I absolutely will. This this is oh not, now you're trying to be generous <laughs> i'm trying to concede the point <laughs> this is not I, I said earlier i think this lays the groundwork for a lot of how marvel films work now i i wouldn't argue I, with that i kind of just threw that off the cuff and the more i think about it the more i think it's actually true this is not meant to be a movie that is very contemplative in any way no and, this... and here's the thing, I'm not mad that movies like that exist. I like a lot of movies that are not terribly contemplative. But those movies need to have other redeeming qualities. And again, I, I think about other Bruckheimer films. I think about The Mummy. 
and I go, there are other things here. Can we talk about the acting in this movie for a second? We, we can, but real quick, because I'm never going to get a point to say it otherwise. You talk about how this movie is too long by your estimation. Yes. I raise you that this movie has a perfect built-in pause double feature point. If you watch the first hour of this movie, it ends with the zombie pirate reveal. And it ends with Barbosa saying, you best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. And then you stop the movie there and you watch the rest of it later. It actually fucking works brilliantly. I believe you will have your headlines, Mr. Andrews. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, that is the last line on the first VHS tape of Titanic. And it's perfect. Indeed. Uh. But okay. Okay. Let us talk about the acting. Okay. Here's, here's, uh, you know what, I'm going to start this, this part of the discussion by being positive. Okay. And then I'm going to go into the rest of it. Okay. Jeffrey Rush is having the time of his life he here. He is. Jeffrey Rush, as an act, and I'm speaking specifically about acting, I'm not talking about the writing of these characters. I want to be clear about okay. that. Okay. Jeffrey Rush's performance as Barbosa is legitimately the most charming thing. He steals every single scene that he is in. He delivers lines that are objectively not great, but he delivers them with a fervor and a joy that I legitimately appreciate. Jeffrey Rush is a joy to watch in this movie. I will start there. Hard agree. Okay. I am confused by Jonathan Price in this movie. Oh, interesting. I'm not. Jonathan Price's entire presence in this movie basically amounts to how much can I move my eyebrows for a paycheck? Jonathan Price plays the governor. He plays Elizabeth Swan's father in this movie. And he is, and, and here, here's the point. I'm going to be generous to him in this. He's not given much to work with. He has what? Six scenes, maybe? Yeah, a handful of scenes. Yeah. He does not have many scenes, and all of his scenes really kind of amount to him being a plot point pusher, which is a terrible place for any actor to be, especially an actor that I respect and believe is as good as Jonathan Price is. He's not given much to work with, so we don't get much. The best moment for him, truly, is at the end, when... Will and Elizabeth are together, and he kind of does his very subtle head nod of a, all right, this is this is what you're going to do. I just want you to be happy. I was just about to say, Jonathan Price is effectively just playing the Sultan from Aladdin. Yeah, but less funny. The Sultan from Aladdin is at least given moments to be funny. Jonathan Price's most funny moment is closing a hand on a fucking... No. Is in a fucking drawer. No, Jonathan Price's most funny moment is when he walks into this guy who is, like, holding his daughter, who for the time is effectively in her underwear. And he turns to his cadre of guards and goes, Shoot him! And everyone's like, No, wait! Elizabeth's like, He saved my life! And Norrington's like, I'm gonna shake your hand, sir. And then... Shows us that Jack has been branded a pirate and calls him out at it, as it, and you know, basically goes, ah, I see how to brush in with the East India Trading Company, eh, Mr. Sparrow? A pirate. And then it cuts back to Jonathan Price, and he just looks at everybody and goes, Hang him! 
But now will you kill this fucker? That is the most funny Jonathan Price part. Yeah, it didn't land for me. But uh, I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not going to fight you on that point. I'm not going to fight you that he is not much of a character in the film. Yeah, like it's it's it, and it is a knock on a movie to underuse such a good such a good actor. Side note: He is the best part of the third one, and he only gets one scene, and it's when he is a dead spirit going into the afterlife and says goodbye to his daughter. I don't think I've seen. I don't think I've seen that that scene. I, I might actually YouTube that. But you famously have only seen the, the third, third Pirates, Pirates movie, movie from moments where, as an usher at Regal, you like poked your head in and saw that it was still a fucking big whirlpool action scene. I saw the goddamn end of that movie so many times. But okay, okay, so yeah, okay. they they misused Jonathan Price. They, I will agree with you. Yeah. Um. Now I'm going to go into, like, literally, I can blanket wash everybody but Johnny Depp, who I'm going to save for the end. Everybody else here is wooden as fuck. Lee Ehrenberg is not wooden as fuck. He is the bald pirate. He is the bald comedic pirate. It's Lee Ehrenberg and Mackenzie Crook. They play Pintel and Rigetti. Rigetti's the one with the wooden eye, and Pintel is the other one. And he, like... For being a comedic side villain, he gives a lot. He gives genuinely funny moments. He gives a genuine, like, tense moment when he sneaks up on Elizabeth and, like, catches her in the closet and says, Hello, Poppet. Not impressed, really. <sighs> like, it's just... It, it will, I will I, fight you on No, that. No, and here's the thing. I might not even be as quite as mad about his... Like, I don't think he had a lot to work with. Your ancillary characters in here are not given a ton to work with. Again, I think about... Okay, you know who I think about there as far as a pirate who had a moment that could have been really, really solid and it's just bad because of the dialogue writing? Mm. I know I said I wasn't going to get into the script here, but fucking the, I'm going to teach you the meaning of pain. You want to know about pain? Try wearing a corset. One of the stupidest exchanges of the early 2000s. An effective quip given what the movie tells us about corsets from earlier in the movie. Apropos of nothing. Because the initial premise given by this fucking pirate is, I'm going to teach you the meaning of pain. Which has no context. It is a trash setup. It no, is I'm... a poor punch-up. It's, it's a shitty... Movie? Action, it's a shitty action 80s movie random thug line. Like. That doesn't make it acceptable. <laughs> we are past this. Hmm. Orlando Bloom's acting in this movie is unforgivable. He is even less engaging than he is as Legolas. And as Legolas, there's a reason for him to be disengaged. <laughs> because as an elf character, he is supposed to be stoic. By characterization. Indeed. Will by characterization is not supposed to be stoic. However, Orlando Bloom does not know how to play this character. He plays him like a fucking marionette doll. Pinocchio had more goddamn charisma. Kira Knightley, who I have seen render a heartbreaking performance in more than one context. Atonement is an incredible movie. Kira Knightley is doing a bad Drew Barrymore in Ever After throughout this whole fucking film. <laughs> so here, 
I I don't know quite as much about pirate pirates in film history as maybe I need to for the point what I'm about to make. But what I'm pretty sure is happening for a lot of this, and it, it's Elizabeth more than it's Will, but it's it's a lot of character tropes. Will is supposed to kind of be your Luke Skywalker. And I will fucking walk that statement back the second anyone tries to push back on it. No, and that's the thing. If that's the case, he's a failure at it. Elizabeth is the girl in the tower who long... You know what? I I said her her father is Sultan. Elizabeth Swan is a fucking Jasmine character. She's the princess who wants to be the rough and wild badass. I think she plays that effectively. She is consistently comporting herself with the authority in which we understand the character had to have grown up with, but to do like rough and tumble things. She starts ordering pirates around because deep down she thinks she can talk the talk and get these hardened killers of men to respect her if she just yells at them angrily enough. That happens with both the zombie pirates and with the pirates who are allies later in the film. Well, and it's subtextually placed that Elizabeth is obsessed with pirates. Elizabeth is clearly a student of pirates. She's read a lot about pirates. And so she's trying to sit here within the space of pirates and play the part. And the thing is, she fails several times... Uh, I she fails to get anyone's respect or anyone to give a shit about her. Then she ultimately like the payoff moment is when she kind of realizes what's going on and it's sloppy. Her her moments of redemption are understated. Who for a character who by your own admission at the beginning of this movie is Arguably our POV. And what are her moments of redemption? A quip about corsets. Offering to marry a dude so that she can get him on her side. Okay, well, real, 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 real quick. It is a, it is a, like, inciting character flaw with Elizabeth Swan throughout the entire trilogy that she consistently uses her sexuality and her role as pseudo princess as a manipulation tactic more than once in the movie more than once in the movie and multiple times in the trilogy she does a thing where she like tries to either seduce, seduce in you know, whatever way... In the Disney sense. Yeah, in the Disney sense, in whatever way suits her purposes in the moment to get her way. I don't think that's a bad thing that she has a arguably really kind of shitty character trait in that she has a ruthlessness when it comes to manipulating the men around her. And here's the thing. It could be... It could be. There's so much potential in that. But the movie, which is... the But a movie which already 
insists upon devoting so much time to unnecessary sequences for the sake of plot. Explain yourself. What didn't it, you like about it? It insists upon itself, Lois. What? It insists upon itself. What does that even mean? Because it has a valid point to make. It's insistent. Will not give enough time to make that character moment for that character settle and feel like something she is either wrestling with or finds peace with. Because there's a version of Elizabeth Swan who goes, this is my lot in life. This is the time that I live in. These are the privileges that I have. And I will ruthlessly use them to save the man I love, to save my own life, to do the right thing. There's also a version of her where she goes, I reject this. I do not want to live this life. And I will throw aside these privileges in order to use my wits and my brain in order to sufficiently fulfill these purposes. But all we get is those points given in half measure. We never have a successful completion in this movie of Elizabeth Swan. I legitimately argue that because I feel like she she leans all the way into the first thing you stated. I think she knows that she can get away with doing shit because she is a woman and she can offer up proposing marriage or banging Jack. And in, I think she's comfortable with using that as a weapon at her disposal. In, in subtext, but never in text. You can make the argument for it, but is it ever textual? Why does it need to be textual? I, I would argue if they have to have a scene where she like admits to Will, yeah, I kind of manipulate all the men around me, that would be that would be shittier writing. It needs to be textual because look at our other two arguable POV characters. It is textual that Jack Sparrow is a character of ambiguous morality, but ultimately a good man. It is stated textually. Sure. It is textual that Will Turner loathes pirates because he has this association with them as the thing that he must reject at all costs, but ultimately it is within his blood and he chooses to embrace it. The greatest flaws and the greatest internalized dynamics of these two characters are placed in absolute text. But the arguable foundational point for Elizabeth is not. Hmm. At the very least, that's misogynistic. At the very best, it's sloppy writing. Hmm. I just, I legitimately feel like the point is made so effectively through the subtext, but I... You're sitting here saying that, like, it's not allowed to be. Again, if, if, if the subtext were sufficient for our other two main characters in this, I will say, ensemble cast, <laughs> if it's... Not, if subtext is not enough for those characters... Why is it good enough for this, again, initial POV and singular female character? This movie passes the Bechdel test because Annabelle exists.
but fucking like barely. Yes, and and you, I I will I will absolutely agree that oh shit you're right this is misogynistic before I like before I say it's bad and okay the mummy is misogynistic as a movie we can mm-hmm. like misogynistic movies a lot of movies are a lot of good movies are misogynistic we can acknowledge the problematic aspects of this I want to be clear I'm not trying to talk you out of out of liking this movie. But I am going to tell you the things that have ruined this movie for me. Speaking of the things that have ruined this movie for me, do you want to talk about Johnny Depp's performance? Yes, let's go ahead. I find Johnny Depp's performance as Jack Sparrow... Here's the thing. Jack Sparrow as a character is impeccably designed. I can't remember a single costume from this movie that is not Jack Sparrow's. Hmm. Okay. I, I, and I would, and I will, I will, I will give you this. Jack Sparrow's character design is iconic. You call this movie what was it? A modern classic. A modern classic. I would say I would put Jack Sparrow's costume on on that pedestal up there with Luke Skywalker's sure. Tatooine clothing. I, I, yeah, I agree, and I, I think your point stands that like his is probably the only costume you could hang up in a Planet Hollywood, and from across the restaurant, everybody knows what they're looking at. I, I, yes. I get you. Now, as far as Johnny Depp's performance is concerned, it is hard to know how much of this is writing and how much of this is Depp's acting choices. But I, at least in my experience. I find that character woefully difficult to latch onto meaningfully. I will 100% agree with you because, like, I made a really big point that I will only stand up and defend Curse of the Black Pearl. I think two and three are fine. A lot of people hate three. I, I think it's fine it's the worst of the original trilogy and then this franchise girl bosses too close to the sun and does the unforgivable and goes oh well we just need johnny depp's jack sparrow to like make these movies work and the other two films are fucking abysmal so i will agree with you 100 percent. jack sparrow is not supposed to be the lightning in the bottle character that he became. There is a movie. Real well, while you're looking something up, we almost had Robert De Niro, Bill Murray, Steve Martin, and Robin Williams in the role at one point or another. I'm sorry, go down that list again for me. Robert fucking De Niro. Bill fucking Murray, Steve fucking Martin, and Robin fucking Williams. Those are all like... (laughs) I can't even picture those. There is a movie. There is one movie in this series, and I believe... I'm trying to remember which one it is. No, it, uh, okay, it actually is Curse of the Black Pearl. There is a deleted scene from... Oh, I'm sorry, no. It's in At World's End. Okay. 
Which, is that the third one? I believe that is the third one. I believe the second one is Dead Man's Chest, and okay. the third is At World's End. Okay. There's a deleted scene in At World's End that I only discovered because I, I read Cracked. If you want to go back and check out our episode about Cracked.com, please. Uh, it's, it's in the last, like, 10 or 15, I think. Sure. The deleted scene in uh, At World's End where... Uh, Jack Sparrow is talking to a character played by Tom Hollander, who's like a fancy fucking lord thing. Indeed. And in the deleted scene, they have a conversation where this lord is uh, commenting out how Jack Sparrow, before he was a pirate, like the thing that made him become a pirate was how he uh, was working for uh, a certain company. And he said that he was supposed to deliver a cargo, and he failed to do so. And Jack Sparrow looks this man in the eye and just goes, people ain't cargo, mate. Yes. The idea, obviously, being that Jack Sparrow was a seaman and was entrusted with transporting slaves. And rather than transporting the slaves, he stopped and he freed them. And subsequently went into a life of piracy because obviously he was never going to work as a legitimate sea captain again. I don't remember if this is also stated, but I remember the second part of that is that ship is lit on fire and the wood is darkened by the smoke and that becomes the Black Pearl. It's it's a moment is in a future movie. And I will always point to it as a moment where I go, all right, I find this moment as a legitimizing of this character. And ultimately, it's in a deleted scene from a later movie. And I won't lie. Having that context in mind as I rewatch this movie, I go, all right, there's a charm to this character that could exist. However, that charm purely exists based on my knowledge of this later deleted scene in a future movie. The character as he exists here, I think, I understand why he has appeal. I understand that his aesthetics are excellent. I understand that he has an ambiguity that is attractive to a lot of moviegoers. That kind of ambiguity, I mean, we we love that ambiguity in our MacGuffins of various movies. You, you've talked about pulp, pulp Fiction before. We love the ambiguity of Vincent Vega's time in Europe. We love the ambiguity of did Patrick Bateman do it or not. We love ambiguity in these characters. And there's, you, you know, it, you and I recently watched The Lighthouse. I very much appreciate the ambiguity of the characters in that movie. However, Johnny Depp's performance in this is frustrating to me. Because, and this might just be me, I personally find it charming for a handful of scenes to see a character whose level of ambiguity in that sense does not allow me to latch on to them. Because if I only have them for a couple of scenes, I go, that is a fascinating character. I love Alec Baldwin's character in Glengarry Glen Ross because he's there for a scene. 
And I don't understand, and for those of you who don't know, um, Google Coffee is for closers and watch this scene from Glengarry Glen Ross with Alec Baldwin. It's one scene. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for it. It's not in the original play. They added it for the movie. It's a brilliant scene and a brilliant performance. Sure. If I had to follow that character this entire fucking movie, I would have hated it. If Jack Sparrow were a random pirate that I saw for, like, as many scenes as I see Jonathan Price in this goddamn movie, I'd probably love him. And I don't love Johnny Depp as an actor. He makes choices that I tend to disagree with pretty heavily. But following him for the entirety of this movie, I, I felt incapable of latching on to what's arguably the most iconic character, the person in the center of the goddamn poster. I hear that. I hear you list a bunch of things, not maybe not necessarily stated in this way, but things that you appreciate and things that jive well with you. My counterpoint, and I'm really going to cage this in, this is a lot of stuff that works for me, and I have like a very acute outside looking at myself perspective of this works for me. The character of Jack Sparrow does two things. I won't argue with you about Johnny Depp's acting. Johnny Depp does a Keith Richards impersonation and speaks, by his own admission. Yeah, by his own person, by his own um, admission. But the character, the things about the character that draw me in are two things. One, I am a complete sucker for the scoundrel with a heart of gold. And that is very, very much what Jack Sparrow is. Mm -hmm. We talked forever ago about my love of R.A. Salvatore and the Forgotten Realms books. There is a character in those books who is a dark elf... He's not a pirate, but he it's only because he doesn't have a pirate ship. He is a he, he is a like sardonic, jolly to the point of lunacy dude who runs around with a fucking pirate hat and basically invents swashbuckling. I love the character. Yeah. You and I both love Gambit as an X-Men character. Remy LeBeau, love Gambit, love the piece of shit with a heart of gold. So he's doing that right. And the thing about the character that I think is written into the character and is not a choice, but I very much love, Jack Sparrow is the kind of person who is flippant and aloof and always cracking jokes right up until the second he can't anymore. I always think about how obsessed Jack is with revenge. He is obsessed with revenge in the movie. It is his primary motivator in this film. He needs to cure the, cure the curse so that he can shoot Barbosa in the chest. And I think about in the scene where him and Will have fought and Will has bested him and Will has blocked his escape and the, the guards are coming in and Jack holds up his fucking pistol and goes, this shot was not meant for you. And it's the most deadly serious we've seen him in the entire movie up until that point. And I love that moment. There's just something I very much appreciate about the person who acts like a clown, but it's entirely an act. And I do believe that is what Jack Sparrow is supposed to be doing. I will give you that moment, that 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 scene and that moment with the this shot is not meant for you. That is a compelling moment. That is good writing. I will give you that. I will give you that that is not consistent 
I came into this movie disliking Johnny Depp as an actor. I have continued to dislike Johnny Depp as an actor for most of his career. I've never forgiven him for Blow. Never actually seen it. It's bad. I, You and I were talking about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas earlier today. I don't think he has a particularly good performance in that movie. Mm. See, I do, but my fair. F- you know what my favorite Johnny Depp vehicle is? Secret Window. Which is a movie most people agree is not very good. I actually think the script is better than people think, and I think Johnny Depp is actually very good in it. I I will fully admit that. By the way, this is all to say nothing of, like, who Johnny Depp is as an individual person. We haven't commented on that, and I don't think this is the avenue to go into detail about that. But Johnny Depp is a piece of shit. Yeah, Amber I mean, Heard is also a piece of shit, but Johnny Depp is a piece of shit. The biggest thing I can say is if somebody retroactively, if somebody tried to make a case that retroactively they cannot enjoy Pirates of the Caribbean because of what a piece of shit Johnny Depp is, I will not fight that. Yeah, no, like I, I and I'm setting that aside for this, but it it does bear at least one one mention here. Sure. I do not like Johnny Depp, and I say this repeatedly, I do not like Johnny Depp's choices as an actor. I feel like he got a very, and this movie is a big reason why he's gotten as long of a leash as he has. A lot of it, I feel, comes down to, I, I when I watch him in Tim Burton movies, I rarely know if I dislike Tim Burton's direction or Johnny Depp's choices. Sure. And I lean more into thinking it's Johnny Depp's choices because in non-Tim Burton-directed projects that he does, I frequently continue to dislike his choices. Results may vary. There's a number of, of gangster movies that I really enjoy Johnny Depp in, but neither here nor there. That's fair. I am interested. Do you think that I'm wrong to call Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley wooden in this movie? Kira Knightley, yes. I, I think we've made it clear... I really defend Keira Knightley in this movie and her acting. We're in complete agreement that Jeffrey Rush is having the time of his life. I think I come in a little higher on Vincent Price than you do. Orlando Bloom, I can hear the argument for being wooden and mostly agree with it. The best moment for Orlando Bloom in this movie is when he and Jack Sparrow try to take over the ship and he does the avast. And everyone looks at him like, you are a fucking dork. The problem is, he's never not that fucking dork. It's just that's the only time where people look at him and go, you're a fucking dork. I I will agree with you on that. I, I think about how, like... The moment where he is acting the hardest is when he's talking with Elizabeth about how he has the blood of a pirate and how, like, that teeters right on the edge of being, honestly, that's either really good or ridiculously bad. So I'll I'll give you Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom. And admittedly, it's not a great point in my favor that I'm agreeing that the two male leads of this film are not, like, the best part of this film. And yeah, here we find ourselves. Okay. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't say this, but Klaus Baudelt's score for this movie is solid. I, I will would, give you that. I want it stated. I think the Pirates theme song, that is one of the fucking greatest pieces of music in a film it ever 
I put that directly right up there with the, the Luke's theme from A New Hope. I don't place it that high, <laughs> but I like it. I think it is good. Good. I'm glad we can agree. I will give you that. Thank Klaus, you. Klaus Baudelt does decent scores. He did The Thin Run Line. He did Prince of Egypt. He did Gladiator. I think he did TMNT, like that t- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, like, interesting. Yeah, like he's 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 a German composer mostly. Um, but he's, and he's done a lot of good stuff that's not movie scores as well. Sure. He's not one of these people who only does movie scores, but he's, he's, he's good. It's a good score. That's all I'm going to say about it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> here's, okay, here's kind of, just to wrap us up, like. Can you tell me a thing you don't like about this movie? Mm. That, that I have not, like forced you into admitting it's not good well no i mean we we touched on this a little bit but i i will absolutely comment i am perplexed by how the film treats its female characters a jerry bruckheimer film indeed um but no like seriously like a, a a undiscovered Zoe Saldana is in this film. She plays Anna Marie, the other... That's her name, Anna yeah. Marie. I think I called her Annabelle earlier. She, she plays Anna Marie, the other girl pirate. And, like, that's, like, her whole thing. And on the bright side, they don't ever really draw attention to the fact that she's a girl. Like, it doesn't matter. And I say that as a point of the writing's favor. It's not, like, sexist. But also, like... She's barely there. I actually find it really perplexing that she is the only main actor, named character actor, who does not return for the other movies. But I guess she went off to film fucking Avatar. This is like two years after she was in Crossroads, so. See, that's a movie I don't even know. You never saw the Britney Spears vehicle, Crossroads? <laughs> no. With uh, with an aging Dan Aykroyd playing Britney Spears' father? Can't say that I have. Oh, that, that'll be a movie night at some point. We'll need, <laughs> we'll need to get drunk first. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, here's the thing. Here's the problem. This is probably one of my top five favorite movies. I fucking love this movie. I love the production design. I love the score. I love the I love the script. The script that we have fought over. Yeah. I can quote most of this fucking movie in me, order. Me shitting on this movie would legitimately be like if you came to me and you said, Hey Alex, I think Alien is a shit movie. Sure. Like that is it it is that level. And Alien is a movie that I can quote. And that I love, and that I have seen 900 times. And love with everything in me. I appreciate that comparison. I I do have one thing. I do have one thing we haven't talked about. Um, This film is so fucking racist in its whitewashing of character. Yes. There are a grand total of, like, four characters of color 
And two of whom are evil zombie pirates. One of whom's literal name is Boson. Yes, B-O apostrophe S-O-N. Yeah, which is a position on a ship. He doesn't Indeed. have an actual fucking name. And, and the fourth character of color I'm thinking of has no lines because he's the little Caribbean boy who follows the harbor master around and like you get like two silent funny moments where it zooms in on his face and he's like making a silly face because Jack Sparrow's doing something weird. Yeah. For it being set in fucking ostensibly the Bahamas or Jamaica or wherever. I don't know where Port Royal is supposed to be. For there to be an absolute dearth of African-American characters. Port Royal's in Jamaica, by the way. Okay, I see, I forgot Port Royal was a real place. Um, for there to be literally zero characters of a, like, Latin American origin. In a Jerry Bruckheimer film? In a movie where, in a movie where the only reference to anything Latin American is a fucking Aztec curse. Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. That is a fucking big black mark against this film. Yeah. So that is my that is my objectivity. Uh, Andy, this has been a long and far-ranging conversation where Indeed. we have touched on so much. Can I just ask where we are time-wise? And, and this will not be the time stamp for our audience because Andy does edits to this. Well, but how long have we been talking? Even, we've been talking for an hour and a half. Even with my editing, we are probably at about that time. I've said just about everything I wanted to say. I, it was important to me to talk about the score. I will say this. This is my final thing. And maybe, maybe this raises the movie up unfairly in my estimation. Everything you have told me you hate, the sequels do it worse. The sequels, and I'm not even talking about four, four, and five. I'm only talking about two and three. Four and five are unwatchable. But the other two films in the original Pirates trilogy are more poorly paced, more poorly written, more bombastic and unrealistic in their set pieces and fight scenes and stuff. Really, the only fun things are the additions of Tom Hollander and Bill Nye as old weird fucking Admiral Guy and Davy Jones, respectively. And, and um, uh, Bill Skarsgård as Bootstrap Bill. Other than that, the films are a mess. The third one's a mess. The third one, like, makes Elizabeth a pirate king. And it doesn't... It, it, it doesn't work. The This... This one, the first one, is the best of the series, without a doubt, in my opinion. And I will defend it and everything you don't like about it, the sequels do worse. To the point where I would point to the sequels and say, no, that is an example of wooden acting. That is an example of bad writing. That is an example of the memification of Jack Sparrow. But this one holds such a fucking place in my heart. I have sympathy for you. Because one of my top five movies is 
Star Wars A New Hope, Mm. the first of that series. It is my favorite Star Wars movie of all of them, of everything else in the original trilogy, of the prequels, of the ancillary movies, and I love a lot of those. I defend the prequels more than most. I think Rogue One is a fantastic film. I actually think the newer trilogy is really solid and has a lot of good to it. But Star Wars A New Hope, I argue, is the perfect, perfect form of a hero's journey film. And I think it executes it perfectly. I think it is a not a, a I'm not going to say it's a perfect movie it's not it has definitely has flaws that I will happily point out and and admit to but I think it is an like absolutely incredible film so I have sympathy for you saying this is a five movie franchise and the first one is the best one I have seen the second one I watched the third one. As you said, I regal watched it. I watched most of the scenes. I watched, I've seen most of the movie just basically via me being a a theater usher and having downtime. So I just like watched bits of movies because that's what we did when we were ushers. You were a concessionist. So you had to like actually work. The only time I got to go in and watch a movie is when I was handing somebody their food. Oh my God. No, we used to get like stoned in the back and just like (laughs) go watch movies before we clean them up. That's why I saw so many endings. I don't like this movie series from what I've seen of it. I don't like this movie. I find I found this movie horrendously overrated. And upon rewatching it, I feel justified in that initial opinion. Mm. I truly do. And and I know and I love people who love this movie, who think that it is absolutely fantastic, who are deeply invested in it, who think it's great. And I and I didn't want to come on this our 100th episode to disabuse all of you of that notion. If you like this movie, like it, watch it, enjoy it, please. I'm disinclined to acquiesce to your request. Means no. My one hope in expressing all of this is just that all of you understand that There are other tastes out there. There is no such thing, I think, as an objectively good movie. There are objectively good things in art. This movie has objectively good things. It has sequences that are solid. It has a score that I think is very, very good. It has a couple of performances that I think are legitimately wonderful. So I have been able to find good in this film. You have been able to, a little bit, find a touch of bad in this film. Absolutely. I I will own that. And no art is perfect. My hope is that any of you who walked into this conversation thinking that the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl... 
is a fantastic film. Walk away going, you know what? Not that, that part, that part Alex had a point. This could have been better. This objectively sucked. This part of the film, I, I want to revisit and I will still enjoy the film, but I will revisit and I will go, you know what? Alex had a point. Orlando Bloom really is wooden. Or the POV is really a mess in this movie. Or something else. I don't sure, know. Sure. I, 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 I was having a conversation. I, I haven't seen Jurassic World, but I've seen, like, the... I saw a sequence from Jurassic World that was written about in a review... And it was a scene... You've seen Jurassic World, right? Yes. There's a moment in Jurassic World, apparently... I, I, I saw the clip of it, where, like, there's the, the people who land to visit, like, they have these doors opened, and, like, the, the, the perspective shot immediately shoots out, and you get a giant, like, almost drone footage view of everything in the park. Of the theme park, yes, indeed. Yeah. And the write-up I was watching talked about this moment and specifically compared it to Spielberg's shooting of the first movie. And Spielberg is... It's very important to Steven Spielberg that he use perspectives that actual humans will have. It's very important to him that if we have a scene where our POV characters are Lex and Tim, the children, being attacked by a T-Rex who is biting down on them through this car door, through, through the top of this car, that we see the fucking T-Rex's mouth biting at them. We see things from the perspective of our characters. And the Jurassic World was a, was a departure from that. I appreciate that bit of criticism. I appreciate this idea of perspective. When I watch Pirates of the Caribbean... I have issues with perspective. I have issues with performance. I have issues with writing. I have issues with plot holes. Frankly, the entire Will Turner connection of blood is tenuous from a plot perspective. <laughs> but I've also forgiven more tenuous plot holes from other movies. So I'm not going to linger on that. I don't like this movie. I want anyone who didn't like this movie to feel like they're not alone. And I want anyone who liked this movie to look at it with a slightly more critical lens. I want you to think about things like perspective, pacing, performance, something else that starts with a P. <laughs> the amount of piss you have in your body after sitting through two and a half hours of it when it could have really been a tight 90. Pause it at one hour and take a piss break then. Uh, You'll know it because it's when Jeffrey rushes his off. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you sometimes, Andy. <laughs> My point is, I've had a lovely time talking to you about this movie, Andy. I love you dearly, even though we disagree vehemently on this. Indeed. Maybe in a hundred, another hundred episodes, we'll actually have that conversation about how I really don't like Kiss. And you really do, for some reason. But I've had a wonderful time tonight. As have I, and I, I appreciate your your ending statement. I, I agree. All art should be looked at critically. This should be looked at critically. And listener, if it is a beloved movie for you as it is for me, 
I hope that you are able to acknowledge its flaws and still quote it line by line and experience joy and fun. This is not usually what we do on this show, but thank you for joining us for this, our 100th episode. Um, we will be returning next time with our more regular format where one of us talks about something we love, the other talks about something we hate, and we'll take yours and the internet's relationship questions. If you have those relationship questions, we would love to kick off you know, episode 101 by going back to a live asker format. You can send those in to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. And just like I promise you I love this movie, I promise you we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. You can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, you know. Check out what we're tweeting about. I assume that Andy's going to put up a bunch of Pirates of the Caribbean posts on her fucking account after this episode. But, you know, you can follow those if you happen to be one of the people in the camp who likes that, who likes this movie. You can also DM us your questions there. We will happily accept those. Or if you, you know, come across ones on the relationships.txt Twitter or on the Am I the Asshole Twitter or on any other Twitter accounts... Um, we're still using Twitter. I, I guess it's the best move right now. Um, send them over to us. We're interested. We really would love to see them. Absolutely. If you want to follow us in our regular lives, you can follow me, Andy Bowell, at jovocop2113 on Twitter. You can find my other Twitter account, Andy's underscore minis, and see what Warhammer or Marvel stuff I'm painting currently. You can find my other show, Cult Fiction, that we mentioned. I have with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, Alex's lovely partner, where we watch objectively worse movies than this one was. You know, I'll admit that. <laughs> at Cult Fiction, at everywhere that you can find love hate relationship. Yeah, I also have objectively better movies too, but you know, that's besides the point. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LieChess, or Chess.com at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. Whether you've been with us from episode one, whether you've picked us up somewhere in the middle, or you started with episode 100, we so appreciate you. Please tell your enemies. <laughs> <laughs>